chapter 19 again is where we're at, which details the crucifixion of Jesus. And um, I'm not exactly sure the, the precise verse we left off, but Pilate, had, he, Jesus has had in the previous chapter, Jesus has had his trial before Pilate. And we know from what we have seen in their dialogue and what Pilate has said to the Sanhedrin, he finds no guilt with Jesus. He has him, verse one of chapter 19, has him flogged. He is then, um, he then presents him after the soldiers mock him and put that, that fake crown on him and fake robe and all of that stuff. And he presents him right outside the Antonia Fortress, which would be on the Northwest corner of Temple Mount. Behold the man, the end of verse, verse six there. And um, I really believe partially what Pilate is doing here after he had been flogged, verse one, and he had put, a, the soldiers had put this crown, as I explained last week, these were depom uh, thorns. They're, they're about this long, about three inches, maybe a little longer, pressed down into his scalp, but it caused him to bleed and so on. So as he goes outside the Antonio Fortress and Pilate says, behold the man, this is the guy you want me to execute? This is the guy you're saying is a threat to Rome? I mean, that's kind of what he's doing when he says, ecce homo, behold the man. But the chief priests and the officers cried out, crucify, crucify. And then Pilate responded condescendingly with sarcasm, take him yourselves, crucify him, for I find no guilt with him. And then they respond, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he had made himself out to be the son of God. Pilate is even more afraid. Again, we went through this last week. And so then Pilate, verse 9, he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus did not give an answer. So Pilate said, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And then Jesus' response, which is quite marvelous, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. And of course, that is a major premise of scripture, that all those in authority ultimately are there because God has put them there. And that's what he's stating. And therefore, he who delivered me over to you has a greater sin. And I believe that is referring to Caiaphas, the high priest who had delivered Jesus. Now, that's where we're at. So with this dithering around of Pilate and his unwillingness to in any way declare the guilt of Jesus, Pilate sought to release him, verse 12. Pilate is trying to find a way to release Jesus. Now what happens next is important. It's only understood in historical context. So let me try to explain it. But the Jews cried out, and this, when John uses the word Jews, remember that's the leadership. That'd be like the Sanhedrin. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now that little phrase, Caesar's friend, this needs some historical contextual explanation. Pontius Pilate was a very close friend of a man named Sejanus, S-E-J-A-N-U-S, who was a very close friend of the Caesar Tiberius. However, Sejanus had been caught in a plot to assassinate Caesar Tiberius and take over the Roman Empire's government. That was found out and he was executed. And so Pilate's position with the Roman Empire is a very precarious one. It's not going to be too many years till they throw him out. And I'll, I'll, that goes beyond what the Bible talks about. But Pilate's political situation is a very precarious situation. And so when the Jewish leadership says, if you don't release this guy, if you release this guy, or if you don't execute this guy, you're not a friend of Caesar's. And so that would play and resonate with Pilate and in, in the sense of his political situation, his relationship with Caesar. And then the Jewish leadership makes this extraordinary statement. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. I mean, that's something a Roman would say. That's something a Roman Empire official would say. The Jewish leadership is saying that. 
That is the end to which they are willing to go to get rid of Jews. I mean, these Jewish leaders are almost acting more Roman than many other Roman people would act. But that's because they want to get rid of Jesus. So Pilate is actually, I mean, he really is, he's backed into a corner. Is really, if he is going to save, and I don't mean his life necessarily, but save his political position, his political future, he, he cannot allow these Jewish leaders to in any way protest to Caesar. So he, co he, he gives in. And when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat in a place called the stone pavement, the lithostratus is what it's called, in Aramaic, Gabbatha. If you would go to Israel with me, I would take you to the church of Etchehomo, and in the basement of that church is the stone pavement, the lithostratus, where Pilate said these words and where Pilate handed over Jesus to be executed. And it's really fascinating in that lithostratus there in the basement, because remember, that was 2,000 years ago, so they build on these various facilities. And there is a little game that the Roman soldiers would play. And they etched it into, into the stone, and that's still there. And it's really, it's a fascinating place to visit because it's one of those um, few places in Jerusalem where we are absolutely certain this is what is being discussed in the scriptures. And so, verse 14, now it was the day of the preparation of Passover. It was about the sixth hour, which would be noon, he said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And look at this declaration. We have no king but Caesar. Now remember, these are not citizens of Rome saying this. These, these aren't citizens of Antioch, one of the great Roman cities in the province of Syria. These Jews in Jerusalem who hated Roman occupation, they detested being under the thumb of Rome's power. And to show how absolutely desperate they are to kill Jesus, they're saying to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. So obviously not only denying Jesus as, as their king, as their Messiah, as their Lord, they are affirming with their own mouth, Caesar's our king. And I, that's, just, that's extraordinary. That, that is beyond any comprehension of the Jews at this point, because they hated being under Caesar's rule. They hated paying taxes to Caesar. But because they wanted to get rid of Jesus, they'll say publicly, we have no king but Caesar. So Pilate, I mean, Pilate has no choice. And yet this reluctance of the pilot, we've seen it throughout these last two chapters, now comes to a head. He is pushed into a corner, and so he relinquishes. So they delivered him up over to them to be crucified. So in a, in a very real sense, verse 16 is pronouncing the sentence on Jesus. That is, Pilate's sentence, Roman Empire's uh, sentence. He's going to die. And as you know, oh, good boy. Think you know that the the Roman mode of execution of non-Roman citizens is is crucifixion. I don't think I had to explain, have to explain what crucifixion is. I think all of you listening, either on uh, various Zoom or the guys here in the room, I, that you need to have that explained. But I, I will say it was it was a. Uh, it was a form of execution. Rome had two primary reasons for doing this. One, it was always done in public, and this will be done in public. And it was, it was to show people, if you do not submit to our rule, and, and if you continue disobeying whatever it is they disobeyed, it was capital crime, uh, this is what's going to happen to you. And normally, the person who would die on a cross uh, would their body would hang there for days. And when actually, I mean, it's, it's a gruesome thing to even imagine. It was not unusual 
for uh, you know animals and other um, birds to become a scavenger and eat parts. Of, I mean, it's horrible to imagine that. And because it was a it was a symbol, an object lesson. If we do not submit to Rome, that's what could happen to us. And so this would be burned into the mind of of the citizens of this area. In this case, it would be Judea. And so to give that decree, to pass that sentence, to declare that he has now uh, guilty and he's going to be executed by the Roman Empire, uh, Pilate has not ordered that. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross. Now, when it says he went out, what that means is out of the city. They would not execute someone in a public place within the city walls. So that means Jesus will go outside the city wall. Now, we, we, I'm, I'm pretty certain, and, and many are, well, we know where that is. You can go see that as a church that's built over it. It's called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is on the west side of Temple Mount. So anyway, where do they take him? The place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. You. <laughs> yeah. Somebody, I thought somebody was asking me a question. Somebody's just talking. Okay, that means they haven't muted their mic. All right, now, before we look at the account that John has of the actual crucifixion of Jesus and what ensues as a result of that, most of this is pretty straightforward. Any questions? Everybody with me? Again, this is pretty well known by most uh, people who've studied the Bible. All right, so um, there at Golgotha, which is uh, and it's a little hillock. It's not a large mount, it's a little hillock. And they would place the crosses up there. We will learn that Jesus, in the next verse, Jesus is crucified with two others. And then we'll talk about who they are. So verse 18, there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Now, we learn a little later on, but we learn from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew uses, to describe these two individuals, Matthew uses a term, the Greek term is leistes, which means insurrectionist, which means rebel, which means revolutionary. So it's ironic that Jesus is being crucified with two other men, one on either side of his cross, that are genuine revolutionaries, who are genuinely a threat to the Roman Empire. And yet Jesus, who's in the middle, Jesus, who will have a title put in King of the Jews, he isn't a threat to the Roman Empire directly in terms of, of the political or military threat. So there's irony in the sense of these three men that are hanging on crosses on Golgotha, Calvary. So Pilate then wrote, I'm in verse 19, an inscription and put it on the cross. It was the standard of the Roman Empire. You would have the main pole of the cross. You would have a little, a little tiny ledge, wood ledge, where the buttocks would rest on that, which would enable the human being who's being crucified to push themselves up to get a breath. Because ultimately what kills you in crucifixion is asphyxiation. You just can't get your breath. In addition, at the top is the cross beam. At the top, there was a, a plate, it would be wood, uh, that would tell the public, this is why this person is being crucified. And so Pilate, it, it's really honestly quite extraordinary that he does this. He has printed across this, this wood piece in three languages, Aramaic, the lingua franca of the day, that's what people, most people spoke, Latin, which was the language of the Roman Empire, and Greek. What is it? Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now, are those statements true? Yes. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. So it is placed there by Pilate, the governor of Judea, representing the Roman Empire. This man is guilty of sedition. He is a threat to Rome because he's the king of the Jews. And so the, the, the 
many of the Jews read this description for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, right outside the city wall, in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write king of the Jews. Rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. In other words, Paul, excuse me, Pilate's declaring, this is the king of the Jews. They're saying, change the wording. Change the wording. This man said, I am king of the Jews. But Pilate's had it. He's no longer going to condescend to these guys' wishes. And he responds, what I have written, I have written. It will not be changed. And so the, 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 the horror of the resurrection, excuse me, the horror of the crucifixion is now begun. And there is a question that is, is a legitimate question during um, an examination of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's account of the crucifixion. How many hours was Jesus on the cross? Well, I'm going to address that right now um, because it's not a specific question that's necessarily appropriate for John. It's an, it's an important question relating to all the accounts of, of Jesus' crucifixion. Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus was placed on the cross at 9 a.m. in the morning. We also know that Jesus dies at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And it is from both Mark's gospel and from Matthew's gospel that for three hours from 12 noon until 3 p.m. in the afternoon, it was dark. There had been an earthquake. It was dark. I believe that's a very important because during those three hours from noon till three, when Jesus actually dies, from noon till three, God is pouring out his wrath on his son. That's one of the reasons why it becomes pitch black and dark. And so the, the extraordinary divine activity that is really the reason Jesus hang on the cross occurs in those dark hours from noon till three. And this is when Jesus becomes a propitiation for our sins. He satisfies the divine wrath and judgment of God. God pours out the sins of the world on his son. How this occurs, what this exact is really hard. It's the mystery of what God the Father is doing to God the Son to purchase our redemption. So I've worked through this a number of years ago. Jesus is on the cross for a total of six hours, but it's those last three hours when the, the horror of him being the substitutionary sacrifice, where all the sin of the world and the wrath of God's poured out on the Son, and then Jesus dies to complete that transaction. And I use that finance term transaction because that's exactly what happened. God has poured his wrath on his son. He's, been, he's, he's died in the place of lost humanity. And it, when he dies, it's over. Then he's gonna, the father will bring him back to, to life in the resurrection. Yeah. Can, I ask so, you, can I ask you a question? Um, yeah. During, um, when, he was, when Jesus was praying in the garden of Gethsemane, and he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from you. Was he, do you think, based on your studies, uh, reflecting on those, those three hours of separation from his father? Or how do you perceive that? Thank you. Well, yeah, I think that, that is part of it. Uh, the term cup is obviously a metaphor. It's a figure of speech. But it's used throughout the Old Testament rather consistently as, as a metaphor, a figure of speech, uh, indicating the cup of God's wrath. It's filled up and it's poured out. And so, yes, I think Jesus is, um, as the God-man, second person of the Trinity, praying to the, to the Father, the first person of the Trinity. And he's just he's envisioning what's about to happen. And those, it, this is the mystery. Uh, this really is a mystery. How this exactly occurred is a mystery because it's God the Father doing this to God the Son, God the Son being willing to do this on behalf of lost humanity. But I think you're right. He, Jesus is reflecting on and considering what is about to happen to him. And he will experience, it, it, isn't, it isn't just 
Jesus anticipating the pain that he's going to go through. I think it's much greater than that. It's not even the, the pain. It's being the object of God's wrath, his fa the Father's wrath, and experiencing that cup of judgment. Again, that's what that figure really means. Is for Jesus as the God-Man, what what he most is is anxious about, most horrified about, as he contemplates what's about to happen. And and then, as you know, he, he isn't in effect. Isn't there another way we can do this? But whatever your will is, I will do it. And so then, and of course, now Jim, I have a question also. My question yes. is. Regarding that wrath that the Lord was sending to Jesus, that was for our sins? That's right. That was for right. all the sinners' sins from yeah, right. the beginning to that's right. even up to now. That's exactly right. All of the sin of all of the world, of all of humanity throughout the history of humanity. That's correct. Thank you. Jesus, I one time heard someone say, and I think that's kind of a, a nice way to think about it. Because of the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus and his, his dying and experiencing the wrath of God on behalf of all human beings, all of their sin for all of time, for all of humanity, Jesus makes it possible for a human being to experience salvation. And so because of that, that, that's why it's, it, it's just no way to put in human language what happened. <laughs> I mean, really, it's just no way to put in, in terms. We can't explain it. But the father pours out his wrath on the son, judges his son, so he doesn't have to judge us. That's that substitutionary atonement, which is another way it's sometimes put. And he satisfies, and that's what that word propitiation means, but he satisfies the wrath of God. God is now, the Father is now satisfied. And the, the redemption of humanity is now possible. But as you know, and we'll see it in, in, in uh, later in the next chapter, the response of humanity to what God has done through his son is faith. That's what God, that's the only thing God expects is that we put our faith in Christ. We understand what he did. We appropriate it to our lives by faith. All right, Woody? Very good. I like that. I have a question as well. Okay. What's the, um, this one's a little simpler. The, um, the two rebels that are on either side of him are traditionally called the two thieves. Where does that come from? Well, some of the older English translations translated lace taste as thief. And that's, it's, I mean, undoubtedly they probably were thieves, but it's a much more specific term, uh, lace taste, that relates to an in, another way of translating that <clears throat> insurrectionist. <laughs> when we don't How do you spell lace taste? Too often. Um, L E S. E S. I'm sorry, I got L E S. L E S T E S. T as in toy. T E S. The E there is an A, so it's a long A, lace taste. But anyway. All right, Ross? Jim? Dr. Yes. Yes. Jim? Yeah. In verse 13, it says it was a day of the preparation of Passover. It was about noon. That's when they jesus down to the place known as the stone pavement and, and i'm missing something there because i thought you said he was crucified at nine and died at three and that says they took him down there at noon uh yeah that's that's really uh <laughs> that's really a good question and i was i was really hoping that uh, no one would ask specific <laughs> because this well, i don't ask that's just that i was here well, it, it, it gets us into the um, in, into the, the difficulty of trying to put together all the different uh, gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John account. Because Mark 
1535 says that Jesus was put on the cross on the third hour, which would be 9 a.m. in the morning. And so as John, if you'll notice what John says, and I, I read from the ESV translation, but I'm pretty sure all of the translations have this there in, in verse 14. It is about the sixth hour. He doesn't say it is the sixth hour, it's about the sixth hour. And so what, what several have concluded is that Mark says it's about the third hour, and John says it's about the sixth hour. And so about, it means it could be on either side. It was that third hour block is the third hour is from 9 a.m. till noon. The sixth hour block is from about noon to about 3 p.m. So, Ed, the, the key to helping resolve this tension is he says it, John, now, in John chapter 19, verse 40, <clears throat> it is about the sixth hour. He isn't saying it's exactly. So it could be a little bit before noon, <clears throat> which would still help us to be satisfactorily aligning this and complementing this with Mark, who says he's hung on the cross about the, the, the third hour. And so um, they're, they're, they're rounding, because John, John did not have a watch. And John was there, and he was, he, was, he was observing all this. And he looks at his watch and says, well, it is exactly noon. As he remembers it, he says it's about the sixth hour. So that could be anywhere from, you know, 10, 30, 11 to about noon. It doesn't contradict it, Ed. And the reason it doesn't contradict is because he uses the term it's about. So. It's instantaneous daylight saving. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, Ed, I mean, I, uh, I had seen you, but it, do you hear what I'm saying? Yes, I understand. Yeah. Dr. Eckman, I have a question. And uh, I mean, again, it is it is so important. To, to remember, he doesn't have a watch where he's looking at it and writes down, it's precisely 12.03 p.m. On, in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. He's not doing that for us. Jim, All right. Jim had a question too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, from noon then until three o'clock, that was a three hour period of, of darkness. Is that what you said? That's correct. It's, yeah, that's correct. Okay. It's about three hours of darkness. Right? And you speak of that as being the propitiation during that period of time. Is that right? During the darkness? That's right. Yeah. And so that's right. was the wrath of God being poured down on Jesus? Was that the same thing as we call the agony on the cross during that period of time, the suffering? Yes. Okay. So yes. the period from nine o'clock to noon um, was just a just a beginning, or a day. he he survived through that, you know, and then started to die apparently during the second three-hour period. Well, well, I, I I probably frame that a little bit differently, John. Um, if it's about again, it's about three hours, but in that first three-hour block. I mean, Jesus is is hanging on the cross. The intense physical suffering of crucifixion, you know, his hands are nailed, his feet are nailed, <clears throat> and all of that. He is experiencing that in all of its physical agony. But from from both Matthew's gospel and and uh, Luke's gospel. When they discuss the darkness that comes, there's an earthquake and then the darkness that comes. And, and then John will see this in a minute. This is when the other aspect of the crucifixion occurs. Not only the physical suffering, but then this horrible, unimaginable, and we can't even really describe it. Afternoon till three is when it's dark and God the Father is pouring out his wrath on his son judging his son so that he doesn't have to judge us. 
And that is, it's during that period, you use the word, and that's a correct word, the propitiation, the, the satisfying of the wrath of God occurs. And sin demands judgment. God's grace offers his son as the payment. He judges his son. He pays that price. And he will then die. He will physically die, and he will experience that spirit that's it's hard to even understand how that could have occurred, but he experiences that spiritual separation from his father as well. So I would break it the first approximately three hours, whether it's precisely three hours or not, is can't know for certain, is the physical suffering is real, but it's that last block is where the, the father <clears throat> pours out the judgment on his son. That's why the darkness, the darkness is, that, that is apart is, an object lesson, a tangible object, this is what's going on. Nobody understood that, but we can now look back on it. We understand why the earth was dark, because the father was judging the son during that block of time. Does that help? Uh, yes, thank you. That All right, anything else? <laughs> All right, good, great, great questions. Um, what verse do I pick up on? Verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, now let me step back and take a look. Typically in the Roman Empire, the execution squad consisted of four Roman soldiers. I see no reason why that would not be the case here. When the ex so I'm going to embellish this. When the execution squad of four Roman soldiers had crucified Jesus, now what does that mean? They nailed the spikes into his hands, nailed the spike into his feet, He's now, the cross has been dropped in that, that hole, and Jesus is hanging there. So he has been crucified. Now he's dying. The crucifixion is the act. The dying is what follows the act. So he being crucified. What did they do? They took his garments and divided them into four parts. Why four parts? Because the execution squad consists of four soldiers. One part for each soldier. Also his tunic. Now, what the ESV is translating the Greek term there, it's called chiton, is the Greek term. And it's hard. What exactly was that? Presumably, it's the, it's the, uh, the, the cloak, um, the piece of clothing that was worn under the outer garment. That's be kind of almost crude, but I don't know how else to say it. In a way, this was like the underwear, but it's a long garment, it covered the whole body but it's under the outer garment, which was often called a tunic. So this is that, this would be next to the human skin. This would next to the body, it's kind of like underwear, but it's one whole garment. It's not in pieces. And so what are they gonna do with that? The tunic was seamless, verse 20, next uh, verse, seamless woven from one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots, to see whose it shall be. And you understand what past lots mean. You know what that means, don't you? This was to fulfill. Now, John does this. This is really important. John says, this was to fulfill scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. That's Psalm 22, verse 18. So the prophecy of Psalm 22, verse 18, is fulfilled in this moment of time. And John makes a connection. He saw what was happening. He made the connection to Psalm 22, 18, and he wrote it down when he wrote his gospel. And so the soldiers did these things. And so, I mean, you can see again that, and we have talked about some of this as we've been going through these, these last couple of chapters, how much of what is happening during Passion Week, from Palm Sunday till, till, till crucifixion, till, till resurrection, is, is a part of fulfilling prophecy. And so John is just going out of his way to make sure we see that. Now, there's one other item to, to deal with before we actually uh, look in verse 28 and following at the death of Jesus. John is there. As I said, he's at the cross. He's observing all this. So he writes this. But standing by the cross, verse 25, where his mother, that's Mary, of course, his mother's sister, she is identified in other parts of the gospel as Salome, S-A-L-O-M-E. Mary, the wife of Clopas, she is mentioned in Luke 8, and Mary Magdalene, whom you, you are real familiar with her. She was one of the first women 
that Jesus did a miracle. He cast out demons from her, and she became a very loyal follower of Jesus. So at the cross are four women that are watching Jesus die. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, John, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into her, his home. Now, there are a, a couple of things here that are important to mention. <clears throat> and I think it's, it's quite extraordinary, really, with all that's happening to Jesus and the unbelievable and unimaginable suffering of Jesus, he's thinking of his mother. And he's thinking as he's thinking as a Jew, but he's thinking of what does the Bible say? Honor your father and mother. And so Jesus, even as he's hanging on the cross, wants to honor that biblical <laughs> commandment, which is in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. And so it, it's important to remember a couple of things here. In all likelihood, and there's it's almost universal consensus. Mary, at this time, his mother's a widow. In other words, Joseph has died. She's probably in her early 50s, based on just making some inferences about how old Jesus is, how old she would have been when he was born, and so on. So she's probably in her early um, uh, 50s. And as you undoubtedly know, in the ancient world, a widow... Um, Unless you were the widow of a very wealthy person, uh, a person who was in the political aspect, uh, dimensions of the Roman Empire or something like that, this was a very destitute position to be in. There was no safety net like there is in the United States with Social Security and Medicare and all that stuff. Nothing like that existed. So John, and this is John the writer, he is willing to take care of, of Jesus' mother. It raises the question, why didn't the other children? Well, I think the major reason for that is, at this point, all the other children of Mary and Joseph don't want anything to do with Jesus. James, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 7, James doesn't put his faith in Jesus until after the resurrection, days after the resurrection. Jude, we knew another brother of Jesus who writes the little epistle of Jude, all of these had rejected Jesus at this point. And so Jesus, dying on the cross, says, John, take care of my mother. And he agreed, takes her into his house. And so it's, it's just, I think, to me, it's a remarkable, a remarkable example of the compassion of Jesus and the importance of that commandment, <clears throat> honor your father and mother. And you see Jesus doing that even as he's dying on a cross. All right, John's the one who really adds a little detail for us. Some of the other gospel writers don't do that. Now, finally, and it's, it's relatively short, uh, is the actual record of Christ's death. After this, Jesus, now I want you to note the language here, knowing that all was now finished. That's a causal participle, because... He knew all was now finished to fulfill the scripture. And that scripture is Psalm 69, verse 21. Jesus said, I thirst. <clears throat> now, um, obviously, the, the statement, I thirst, makes sense because he is undoubtedly um, dehydrated, and he is, because he's dehydrated, he has trouble speaking, and there's something he's going to say that needs to be heard, and so it was not unusual, it was not unusual at all for the Roman soldiers to do something, and so what they do, a jar full of sour wine stood there. This is wine that would quench the thirst of a dying person. 
Mark, Mark's gospel talks about something else they do. This is not the same thing. They will give Jesus wine mixed with myrrh, which is like a sedative. It deadens the pain. That's not what they're doing here. This is to satisfy the thirst of Jesus. So they took a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch. Hyssop, they're all over Israel. Hyssop is like a brush-like plant, and you would you would soak it in the plant. It would it would uh, uh, absorb the liquid, in this case the wine, and they put it up on a stick, and it would drip into Jesus' mouth. So he would, it would be like us. It would drip into his mouth. That's what they're doing. And held it to his mouth, as I just explained. When Jesus had received the sour wine, again, because how John's mentioning this, they had already given him this wine mixed with myrrh, which was like a sedative. This, and this is what John's doing, is to have enough moisture in his mouth that he can speak loudly. And so when he received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Now, John's gospel is the only one that records this for us. It's tetelestai in Greek, and it is, it is in the perfect tense. Now, I, that I know doesn't mean anything to you, but let me explain, because it is important for me to explain this to you. When Jesus says it is finished in the perfect tense, it's an act that has ongoing consequences. So it's a definitive act that occurs in space-time history, but it, it is in the perfect tense. It has an ongoing consequence to it. And so you can understand when Jesus uses that phrase, to tetelestai, it is finished. The penalty has been paid. The wrath of God has been satisfied. Now, I'm going to die. And he gave up his spirit. Now, that language is indisputable. Jesus voluntarily dies. Now, granted, I mean, he has suffered. His body is actually racked with pain. He's lost a lot of blood. He is dehydrated. But Jesus chooses the very second he's going to die. And that's the meaning of the language, gave up. And his spirit, you could legitimately translate that soul. It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit. It's a small s. But he gives up his soul. In other words, he experienced, now listen, he experiences the essence of physical death. The soul is separated from the body. And so in those, in, in that one verse, verse 30, you have four key points. He received the, the sour wine to get enough moisture, as I said, it like drips onto his tongue, enough moisture that he could speak. Then he cries out, the redemptive program of God is completed with the ongoing perpetual results, which means you and I can experience the salvation 2,000 years later that Christ offered. He decides the second he voluntarily, this is when I'm going to die. And he gave up. He experienced that separation of the soul from the body. Yeah. So the everything that's been prophesied in the Old Testament about the lamb, about the, 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 the sacrifice uh, of the lamb as the atonement, the need for a final once for all atonement has now been completed. Jesus has died. Now, the next event, of course, will lead us to the uh, burial of Jesus. And then ultimately by his uh, to his resurrection, which uh, I don't know if we'll get to all that. Fred has a question. Jim, I, oh yes, I, go ahead. I have a quick question for you. At that particular time when he gave up his spirit, was he then in the presence of his father? That kind of, you kind of broke up there. Uh, did, oh, I'm sorry. Was he then? Did you, did you use the word in the presence of his father? Is that what you ask? Yes. Yes, the answer to that is um, yes. Thank you. His soul, an immaterial part of Jesus is the God-man. 
Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. What about the going to hell part? Didn't he have to descend to hell first? That's not from the Bible. That's in the Apostles' Creed. Hmm. Um, Bill, right? Yes. Bill has asked a question which I was hoping nobody would ask. <laughs> but he's a very astute student of, of doctrinal issues. But he asked, what about when he went to hell? And I answered to him, I don't know if you all heard that, his question. But um, the, this, the phrase, he descended into hell, is not a biblical phrase. It's not in the Bible. It's in the Apostles' Creed, <clears throat> which, depending on your tradition and your worship service. Many churches recite the Apostles' Creed as a part of their service, their liturgy, and so on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a great creed. But um, to, to deal with this question, you're going to have to allow me to go on a little bit of an historical bunny trail, okay? <laughs> the Apostles' Creed is a very old creed of the church. You first see it in the 200s. And in those early copies, there is no, he descended into hell. It isn't there. It doesn't appear until a creed, the earliest one we have of that, is in the 600s, is when that he descended into hell was added. And we know who added it. We know, we think we know why he added it. But then that, there are several creeds that churches use that don't have that phrase, but probably the most widely used one that's in most hymnals does have that he descended into hell. But again, that is not a biblical phrase. And secondly, it was added uh, pretty close to 600 years after Jesus died. And in those early forms of the Apostles' Creed, it doesn't appear. So um, that's why um, I, I don't believe the Bible allows us to believe that Jesus, when he died, went to hell. So unless you have more questions, as Forrest Gump said 21 and a half years ago, that's all I have to say about that. But it does lead to why it talks about the two thieves on the cross say, you'll be with me in paradise exactly. tomorrow. Exactly. Or now, or whatever. That's right. He says, and that's a great, that's a great illustration of why it's dubious to believe Jesus went to hell because one of the one of the lace taste on the cross believes in Jesus and he and he chastises the other guy who did not and Jesus says today you will be with me in paradise hmm. so again I mean and there are a number of other passages we could look at which seems to validate that Jesus went his soul went to be with with the heavenly Father thank you um, I think I'm grateful you brought that up, Bill. <laughs> but I mean, it's it's an important question. I mean, because it it is in in the creed that many people cite. All right, very good. All right, we have a few more minutes. Let's look at the remaining parts of chapter 19. And since it was a day of preparation, remember Passover occurs on the Sabbath, which was sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. So the day of preparation is Friday. That's why we know Good Friday is friday <laughs> because of the explicit way in which the day jesus died is itemized in the gospels so the day of preparation is friday and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the sabbath for that sabbath was a high day the jews asked pilate that their legs be broken and might be taken away i explained this to you a little bit earlier the typical roman modus operandi was they would crucify somebody and their body would stay on the cross for weeks and I mean, you know what would happen. The body would deteriorate and all the stuff that we have mentioned. But you're, this is in Jerusalem. And the, the Old Testament law prohibited that kind of thing happening in Jerusalem. And in addition, we're only a couple of hours before the Sabbath starts. Sabbath starts sundown Friday, goes till sundown Saturday. That's the Sabbath. And in addition, this was a special Sabbath because this is the Sabbath that's associated with Passover. That's why it's called a high day. I'm reading from my translation, ESV translation. So the Jewish leadership is saying to Pilate, you can't let those bodies stand on the cross. 
This is just right outside the wall of Jerusalem. This is a sort of the high holiday of of the Sabbath on Passover. So you gotta let you gotta get those bodies down. All right. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first two. Now why would they break the legs? Because if you break the legs, you cannot push your body up and get breath. I mean that is the horrible just to contemplate that how horrible that was. The other, the first and the other been crucified, verse 33. But when they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead. They did not break his legs. And the Old Testament prophecy said, not a bone in my body was broken. And here, John doesn't do this, but Matthew and Mark, I think, both quote from that Old Testament prophecy in the Psalms. Verse 34. But one of the soldiers, again, this would be that four-man execution squad. One of those pierced his side with a spear. That was a normal Roman practice to see if the person was really dead. And out came wood, blood, and water. The body is already, the body is, is dead. The blood has started circulating. I mean, that's just all it's telling us. He, now verse 35, the he there is John, the writer. He who has saw it has borne witness. This testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you may also believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones was broken. Uh, that's quoting from Psalm 34, verse 20, as I mentioned a moment ago. And, and it's, I just find it interesting that John, it's almost like a parenthesis. Verse 35, John is telling, I saw all this. I'm a witness to all this, and I'm telling you, it's true. <laughs> it's like it's like a parenthesis, and then he again relates this to the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. And again, another scripture says, they will look upon him whom they pierced. That's Zechariah, who's a minor prophet. That's Zechariah 12, verse 10. So what John, as he saw this with his own eyes and is boring witness to it, he thinks of two Old Testament scriptures that are fulfilled before his very eyes. They didn't break any of his bones, Psalm 34, uh, 20, and they looked upon him who they pierced. John sees the fulfillment of two Old Testament texts. All right, now we're almost done, but let's look at the burial because there are a couple of important things here. Now, after these things, and then these things would refer to what we just read about the, the, the actual death of Jesus and then what the execution squad did. Joseph of Arimathea. Arimathea is a little village northwest of Jerusalem, uh, around 20 miles or so. Was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly. Now, we know that Joseph of Arimathea was on the Sanhedrin. And he had a close friend on the Sanhedrin. We'll be introduced to him in verse 39, Nicodemus. So Joseph of Arimathea, a disciple, but a secret disciple. He was a follower of Jesus. He believed in Jesus. He put his faith in Jesus. For he feared the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Again, to, to be honest with you, the Sanhedrin, nobody would have any dispute with what he's doing because they want to get that body off the cross. Again, because it's the high Sabbath day of Passover. Nicodemus, verse 39, also, who had come to Jesus by night, that's back in John chapter 3. We had studied that a long time ago. Came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Now, that's significant. Now, again, this is something we we don't even think about this in the, in the 21st century. But what they would do is uh, anyone who died, in this case, Jesus, they would wrap the body in linen. But in wrapping the body, they would wrap it with spices because he's going to be laid, as was very typical in the ancient world, laid in a stone tomb. And this would help neutralize the smell of the decaying body. There's no other way to put this. And so I want to explain, uh, this is, this is, I think I can do this. In the ancient world, especially in the Jewish, but this in other parts too, but in the Jewish ancient world, a person would die 
you would wrap their body with all these spices in linen, linen wrap rather tightly, and place it in a stone tomb on a ledge. And of course, even though the, the spices and aloes and so on will help neutralize the smell, that body's going to deteriorate. Then what they would do is about a year to 18 months later, the family would come back, open up the tomb, unwrap the linens, and clean the bones and place them in an ossuary, a box. And those bones would be placed with all the other family members who had died. We have found dozens of, they're called ossuaries. We found dozens of these in archaeological digs. If you go to the Israeli Museum in Jerusalem, you can see examples of these. So again, this was the, what they're doing is the normal thing that would be done. Now, what is different is Joseph is a very wealthy man, and he's going to bury Jesus in his tomb, his family tomb. Not just Joseph, but the fact, because remember, it'd be hewed out of, hewn out of rock with these ledges. And so it, it, they're preparing the body, verse 40, so they took the body, bound it in linen cloths with the spices as the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Now, I want you to notice something. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. So wherever Golgotha is in this little hillock, this little high area, it's got to be very, very close to this garden where Joseph's tomb is. That's why if you go to Jerusalem in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, on the one side of the church, and you walk up the steps and see, there's even a big big hole in the rocks where they say Jesus' cross was, was placed. And then you walk down the steps, walk across to the other side of the church, is where you see the burial site of Jesus. And if you would go underneath that site, there are just there are, are 10 or 11 open, uh, hewn-out areas of tombs. So that's why there's a pretty de good degree of confidence that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre on the west side of Temple Mountain, Jerusalem today, is where Jesus was crucified and buried. Because the text is telling us where he was crucified was very close to this grave. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And Isaiah 53, verse 9 says that the servant of God, the Messiah of God, will be buried in the tomb of a rich man. And so again, John doesn't mention this. Matthew does mention it. But again, you see another fulfillment of a very specific prophecy of the coming Messiah. Well, this is a great place to stop because we'll deal next week with chapter 20, which is the account of the resurrection. So we, there's a lot of great questions. I appreciate them to go through what we're all familiar with. But John is giving us some unique pieces of information about the actual crucifixion of Jesus. So before I quit real quickly, any final questions? All right. You're very good students. Thank you. I'm going to pray and I've got to get out of here to another one of my classes. All right, let's pray. Oh, my Lord, we're grateful for um, what you were willing to do, Lord Jesus, on Calvary's cross. Uh, it is it is almost unimaginable for us to not only understand and come to grips with the unbearable suffering that Jesus bore for us. Crucifixion is the most ugly form of execution there ever devised by human beings. And yet you subjected yourself to that for our sakes, because you love us. And then even more difficult is to try to comprehend that exchange where the father poured out his wrath on his son, judged his son in place of us. That is, is very difficult, but that's how the Bible puts it. And when Jesus cried, it is finished. The redemptive plan has been completed. The wrath of God has been satisfied. How do we know that? What's the proof of that? The father will resurrect his son three days later. That's the proof. That the father accepted this. That it was an adequate sacrifice. Satisfying the divine, perfect wrath of God. The judgment is complete. The price for sin has been paid. 
And that's what the resurrection validates. It proves that. And we'll study that next week. Lord, this is amazing truth. It is at the heart of the gospel. It is at the vital center of what we believe. And this is the defining moment of genuine biblical Christianity, what we've just studied. Thank you for the good questions, the good interaction we've had today. Bless these men and all their responsibilities, all that they're dealing with. Again, we pray for Fred. Uh, Lord, give him added strength each day. Help him to be able to have confidence and trust in you as his body heals from this very, very difficult time in his life. So we commit him to you. So give us a good rest of the day. And Lord, may we represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week.